This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season two of Reinvented, we're exploring ways to design a better life from your physical health to your mental well being and far, far beyond. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Phil Parazio. Phil is a urologist, and he's one of the many people that helped save my life several years ago. In this conversation, I speak with Phil about his experiences with professional burnout, how things came to a head during the pandemic, and how he has used mindfulness to regain control of his personal and professional lives. We'll talk about things like intentionality, scheduling breaks, creating rituals, and so on. Now, to kick things off, I asked Phil to introduce himself and to list everything that he's working on. Phil isn't the type of person to brag, but I thought this would be super helpful if you're the type of person who thinks that you're too busy to make meaningful changes at work. Phil is truly one of the busiest people that I know, and so if he can make changes, I think there's hope for the rest of us. Now, finally, I'll just say up front, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out Phil's new podcast, Operate with Zen, um, or if you know a, a surgeon or a medical professional who's interested in these topics, definitely give it a look, and I will be sure to include the link in the show notes. All right, let's get started. Uh, my name is Phil Parazio. I am a urologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. My technical titles are I am an associate professor of urology and oncology. I run the kidney and testicular cancer programs for the Brady Urological Institute at, at Johns Hopkins. I'm also the director of social media. Um, I have appointments in marketing and communications where I work on social media and physician outreach for the hospital. Uh, I am a, a busy clinician. I run a, a busy practice in addition to wearing those administrative hats. And most importantly, I am a husband and father of two amazing little girls. So you've got this amazing work and a work that I imagine has a ton of um, you know, purpose behind it. It's rewarding work. I would imagine we can dive into that. Um, but as we've talked about sort of off mic here, you've had some changes over the last few years. Some things started to, to feel a little bit different in your life and you've particularly gotten into Zen and, and mindfulness. Take me back and sort of give me a sense for how did you go from having all these high status, high prestige things going on to realizing it wasn't exactly what you wanted. Maybe there was something that was missing. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think... Well, to give this kind of a hard start or a hard stop, whatever way you want to put it, I mean, I think we were all influenced massively by the pandemic. And all of a sudden, all of those things I was working on came to a grinding halt. And I was left at home kind of questioning, you know, exactly what I was doing, what were the priorities, how do I reconcile these things, and, and how do I move forward? And so I spent a lot of time trying to engage with myself and, and things I thought were helpful. And so it started first with yoga, just as a way I said, well, if I'm gonna have some time off, I need to work on some flexibility and some strength. That would be something I'd really benefit from at work. And then being the inquisitive mind um, that, that I am or that I have, I wanted to read and figure out, well, why does yoga actually work? Where does the breathing and the mindfulness play into that? And then that just started branching out and started this huge ball rolling forward and helped me gain perspective on a lot of things that I was doing wrong, but a lot of things I was also doing right without realizing that I was taking kind of a mindful or thoughtful approach to life. And so over the last two years, it's just kind of helped me refine that practice or put my life into a different framework or a different context of being more 
mindful and thoughtful about what I'm doing, trying to be more present in the moment for what I'm actually uh, participating in. And I think I've gotten more enjoyment and definitely less stress out of a lot of the things that I do. So let's go, let's go back and push on that for a little bit. So you sort of happen into yoga and I want to talk about that, but, but even before that, like the idea that something was missing, the idea that you, you were looking for something else when sort of the world started to lock down, you're working from home, et cetera. What was behind that? Like, is that something where you're like always looking for new things and you suddenly didn't have a commute and so you're like, great, what can I shoehorn into that portion of my life? Or was it something totally different than that? Like, where did that desire for change come from in the first place? Yeah, I think it was that, as you said, I'm incredibly busy, had a number of achievements, if you want to call it that, but there was no real direction. I was just kind of going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and kind of felt at some points like I wasn't catching my breath. I wasn't being as direct or thoughtful or efficient as I could be. And I think it was, in retrospect, negatively affecting some portions of my life. Uh, and since then, I've been able to kind of focus in on more direction and more thoughtfulness. And I think that's kind of where it comes from. Yeah. Did you, um, like in those early days, like pre-yoga or as you were stumbling into it, were there like, I don't know, were there moments where you were like, wow, like this just isn't working? Or like I'm having these challenges? Or is it just kind of like a general feeling? And then looking back on it, you see that that's maybe what was going on. Yeah, I think it was, to be honest with you, more in retrospect, looking back and going, man, I was way off or I yeah. could have been doing this a lot better. And, you know, the term in medicine a lot, and is, this is this term uh, is not exclusive to medicine, but but burnout is really prevalent in the field right now. And anybody who practices, period, but practices at a high level is going to experience burnout or or kind of be familiar with that. And... I remember my first real burnout episode was probably two or three years ago now. But what that makes you realize is that you've actually been cycling in and out of burnout for years. Hmm. And that you go through these terrible cycles of up and down and without even recognizing the, the, when things were going poorly, you have no ability to change them or influence them. And so getting back to your question, I think a lot of this has been in retrospect and saying, oh man, I was really burnt out then. I was crispy. I was really struggling, but I was, um, I'm a pretty um, effective person. And as you said, and it can accomplish things. And so you can power through a lot of that, but that doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean yeah. it's the most effective or healthy way to do it. So I think that's, um, I think where a lot of the journey has started. Had yoga been something that was always on your radar? Did you have like a good friend who was really into it? Or was it more just like, yeah, yoga, that sounds great. And, and off you went. Yeah, it was something I've always kind of dabbled in, but didn't really understand. Uh, and I thought, well, strength and flexibility, kind of relaxing. Yoga makes sense. Let me give that a shot. Yeah. And it was the pandemic. There were all these free apps, right? You could sit there and, you know, sure. look at classes and and you know, use a variety of instructors. So that's where it started. And then it grew from there. Okay. So yeah, I'm curious, like, what was your foray into yoga? Like, because as I understand it, like, we think of yoga as a bunch of poses, but traditionally, yoga is actually a lot more than that. Like the posing in the movement is actually a tiny portion of, of what yoga is really about, right? Is that kind of what you what you came to discover as you dove in? 
Yeah, and I started reading into the theory and philosophy behind it. And in general, there's a variety of yoga practices and it can go in a variety of directions, but there's breathing, there's movements, and there's meditation and, or, or mindfulness. And different practices will teach you different forms and there's a variety of ways to do it. But I basically think all three of those components are incredibly important, particularly for surgeons, to be honest with you, and physicians. But I think they can be helpful for a lot of people um, out there. I guess, how does yoga approach those things? Like, what does that look like? We, we know, like, you know, people do, like, sun salutations and stuff like that. But, like, what, what, is, what did it look like? I guess maybe let's make it real. What was it like for you? Like, where did you start? And then how did you pick up those pieces? Were there books that you read, apps that you were using? Like, wh what was it actually like? Yeah, early on, um, honestly, it was the Nike app and the Peloton app. Okay. Mostly for easy access classes that were relatively short. Uh, you know, I'm not one, I'm still not one to delve into 60 or 90 minute classes. It's just not who I am. I prefer things in kind of shorter intervals and more often. But um, that was kind of the way I started and realized physically I was really not flexible. Uh, and over time and persistence and daily practice, I could improve on the flexibility of my body. And as I started reading about yoga and trying to understand principles and theories of yoga and meditation and mindfulness, started working on the more mindful aspects and then the, the breath work. And I think it's really kind of helped me uh, in general be a more uh, kind of calm, thoughtful and present person. I'm, I feel like there's so much conversation now about mindfulness. Like it's a word that's at the, the risk of like losing meaning, right? Um, which is great. It seems like there's a lot of goodness in there, but it seems like it's it's kind of the wild west of, of definitions and whatever else. What has it been for you? Like how do you think about mindfulness? And then I want to talk more about like how is that shaping your life for the better? Yeah, I think the simplest definition of mindfulness is just being present and understanding everything that's going on in the moment. And that has to do with physical sensation, that has to do with emotional sense, and that has to do with what's going on in your mind. And trying to cultivate or understand what's going on in yourself and around you is the first step at learning how to manipulate those things. So that's kind of the way I see it. You can get, you can be mindful in a variety of ways. And I think that's the most beautiful thing. Okay. I do daily yoga. I, I consider that part of my mindfulness practice. I think the second most important part of my mindfulness practice is basketball. I play basketball twice a week and it's completely a time for me to unplug from everything else in my life and be completely present in that game and with my friends and what's going on, right? And then another great uh, opportunity for me to re be really mindful is with my kids, right? I really unplug everything else in the world and I'm all about them. And I think that's, um, you know, so mindfulness can take on a variety of, of tasks. And for other people, it's different, right? You see people who do extreme sports, why are they doing extreme sports? Because they absolutely have to be focused on the moment and they can unplug. I used to run marathons. When you're running for two hours or three hours, your mind unplugs and you become completely mindful kind of in the moment, right? There's lots of ways to get there. Look at religions. I mean, almost every religious tradition is, has some component of mindfulness to it. Right, being present in the moment as you're speaking to your God or your deities or whatever that may be. So it's all there. We're all trying to achieve the same thing. And mindfulness is is the encompassing term. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because I feel like a lot of times we think about mindfulness as um, like getting really still and pushing everything out of your mind and just being present, 
which I think on some level is and or could get you there. But a lot of the things you're talking about are, are like, I don't know, frankly, sound a lot more interesting. Like go do something that you love so much that you lose track of everything that's going on outside of you. Like that sounds awesome, right? That sounds like something we should be doing a lot more of. So it's it's interesting to hear that like it doesn't have to be painful. Like I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say this, but like I don't have to sit on a cushion in a certain position for a certain period of time staring at the wall to get, I'm presuming, some of the benefits of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on, Chris. And I think I'm all, I'm wonderful at butchering other people's quotes, so I'm going to try not to screw <laughs> this one up. But there, there's <laughs> basically a, a quote from the Buddha who said, you know, his teachings don't, they've got to make sense in your context or something mm. along those lines, right? So sitting on a cushion and doing mindfulness and yoga may work for me in the mornings, doesn't work for me in the afternoons or the evening. My mind's going other places. I need to be more physical. That may yeah. never work for you or somebody else. So you've got to find your way. You've got to find your kind of personal approach to it, in my opinion. And there's a there's no right way. There's no wrong way. It's your way. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm curious. Like, I feel like some people might be skeptical, and the question will be like, okay, well, playing basketball sounds great. Like, you know, a lot of good reasons to do that. It's good for your physical health. Nice to reconnect with friends, you know, all that sort of stuff. Meet strangers, whatever. Um, But do you find that when you do these things that the benefits spill over? Like, is it just an enjoyable time? Or do you find that other things in your life are better when you consistently show up for that, you know, quote unquote practice? Yeah, I think... I think it definitely spills over. And I think that's one of the real benefits of doing it. And there's a variety of ways it spills over and it depends what you're doing, right? So for the physical activities like yoga or basketball, you have your cardiovascular health and kind of your physical health. And that certainly spills over. I think for practices like yoga, one of the things, I, why I encourage yoga for surgeons in particular um, is that it teaches you body awareness. And one of our big okay. struggles in the operating room is ergonomics. And you see a lot of surgeons with back, neck, or shoulder issues. And I know you've had your share. Um, And I think one of the things yoga has taught me is to be aware of when I'm in a bad position in the operating room or when I'm stressing, you know, to use yoga terms, back body or front body or side body using, you know, uh, parts of the body that I shouldn't be using at that moment. So there's the the physical components that that spill over. But I think more importantly, um, there's the there's the mental components of it. And, you know, we don't have to get into the emotional or the spiritual, and and there may be some benefits for some people there, but I think at a bare minimum, you learn to modulate your your being. You're kind of in and out. You can go from one state to another a little more easily by learning to kind of practice those things. And that's what mindfulness teaches you, is how to take your mind from one place to another, moment to moment, and be fully where you are. Hmm. Yeah. And I imagine part of the benefit too, is like, as you build that practice, it becomes easier to create that space between a stimulus and your response. Like you mentioned parenting, right? And so I, you know, I also have a young family and that's like the hardest part is like, you, you know, in in a vacuum, you know, like what you should do, you know, you should be patient, you know what that all looks like, but in the moment it's really hard. And so like, I I find myself thinking about mindfulness too, where if I can create a, a, like a pause, just a little bit of a separation, the outcome's almost always a better outcome, right? And so I, I hear, I, I suppose I hear some of that in your story, but is that is that what you find both from a parenting standpoint, but then also thinking about work, thinking about things beyond just that parenting as well? Yeah, I think 
mindfulness practices help you make that change quicker. You know, ins- that mm. pause becomes more instantaneous. And I'm not yep. there yet. Uh, I'm working on it. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I promise. I would say, I mean, honestly, probably nobody's there, but that's the goal. But if you really read the literature and the science behind it, you know, there's a lot of claims about why, what mindfulness can or cannot do. One of the things it very clearly does is help people transition their mind states more quickly. Hmm. That is very clear from the literature. And, you know, the, the subsequent benefits from that, I think, are where you get into a little bit of more muddy science and, and muddy data, but it certainly helps people transition their mind states. And I think that's the, the practice. So is that like, so you mentioned the physical benefit being body awareness. So I'm aware that I'm leaning to one side or I'm, I'm you know, I'm neglecting my posterior chain or like whatever it is, right? So you get that physical benefit because it's a byproduct of being in all these crazy poses and having to, to like learn things and, and that are hard enough that it requires your actual attention to do it, right? Is it the same thing then with your mind where if I'm forcing myself to become aware in different situations, to be present, to block out distractions, like to notice where my feet are, in a given moment, or to maybe better said, be where my feet are in a given moment. Like, is that the same thing where I'm just building that muscle? I'm just building that awareness. And as I build that, like, it just becomes easier for me to say, oh, I need to shift in this moment. Yeah. That and that, yeah, no, that's exactly it. And that's what the neuroscience would say too, right? So while the end effect of doing a yoga practice may be in muscle control or coordination, the, the actual physiology happens in our brain where those neurons you know, kind of rewire, that's neuroplasticity, right? Where we build these circuits and they become easier and more natural and more thoughtless as they move into, as those circuits are repetitively used. It's the same thing with our mental practices, right? You're, you're, you know, little kids, right? You watch them learn the alphabet or do math just as we did. It was a very cerebral process when we were younger. My favorite one to think about is also the way they walk, right? You watch a toddler walk and they're thinking about picking up their knee and then their foot and putting the next one down. <laughs> and then before right. you know it, all of a sudden they're gone around the house and you, you've got to catch them and make sure they don't go falling down the stairs. It's amazing how quickly those things happen. And we still have that ability uh, in our old age, you and I, Chris, as we're getting older here, but we still have that ability to, to kind of shape our brains and, and affect the way we think and, and move. One, one question for you, I guess, on yoga specifically. So do you think about yoga as a system where like if you incorporate the three different parts or the different elements of it, it's synergistic, like it's exponentially more powerful? Or in your experience, is it like anything you can do is good? Start where you are and, and like, and you can, you can get all the value or a lot of the value just from picking one of those that sounds like, you know, interesting or what you need in a given moment. Yeah, I think it all ties in together. Um, you know, once again, I'll give you my personal story. I mean, when I first started doing it, it was strictly about flexibility, right? It was just trying to be more flexible, more strong, better core, honestly, for the operating room and for work. And yeah. then it's kind of evolved into incorporating breath work, incorporating mindfulness, uh, incorporating kind of being present and focused. And I think it is synergistic. All of those things work together. And that's why it's been around for centuries, right? Because it, it is effective. Um, but I would start with the simplest thing and, or, or what you're looking for, right? So if somebody's really looking for a mindful connection, but they have a hard time sitting on a, on a mat, then try yoga. Cause it may help you get over that mindfulness hump. Um, if you're really looking for something to help physically as I was, it's, it's a great way to get started. Yeah. I like, I like that there's, 
sort of an openness in this that like what works for you may not work for other people or that you take parts of it or modify it. And like, I, I love what you said about how your morning practice is different than your afternoon practice because your mind is sort of wound up at that point And like, you just couldn't sit down and do it. And I think that's something that feels like it gets lost in all these conversations is people have like what works for them, but not a lot of ideas for how other people can make it work for them. And, um, and so people get turned off. Like you try and you're like, yeah, yoga, that sounds great. Worked for Phil. Like he seems like a good guy and, and they go and they show up and they do a, a class or two and, and it's not for them. And that's kind of the end of it. And I think, um, everything's not for, for everyone, but there's like a little bit of customization and taking ownership for your experience. Even if it starts out with luck or just some sort of blind inspiration that like is really important to making this stuff work for you long-term. Yeah. And I think taking note of what you're doing whether it's mental notes or writing it down, helps you process it as well too, right? Well, this worked really well for me today. It did not work well for me two days ago. What was the difference? How can I be better? And, and being conscious of those things, right? We say uh, you could use conscious and mindfulness you know, kind of uh, interchangeably there, but being mindful about what you're doing, being thoughtful about what you're doing will help you make, you know, um, I think, advances more quickly. Yeah. Let's talk about work. Right. So this kind of the story starts with undiagnosed burnout or general awareness of burnout and sort of you deciding to make some changes and then following that kind of where it where it led you. But I want to talk about I feel like that a lot of us struggle with like we can do some of this in our personal lives, but then you get to work and you don't have as much control and everyone else is burned out, stressed, whatever. And it becomes really difficult to try to take your a better version of yourself into that world where you just don't have the same control that you do or agency that you do at home. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, like, as you've gotten more comfortable in your practice at home, like how have you, if at all transitioned this to work and what does that look like for you? Yeah. I'm going to push back and challenge you a little bit and tell you that you, you do have control uh, of your work and of your life. Um, and, and the key is, um, little victories, I think. Right. Okay. So you're right. You may not be able to completely control what you're going to do at every single day at your job but you can certainly control kind of how you arrange things or listen, I'm going to work for an hour here and then I'm going to take a 10 minute break. You know, um, you, you do have control over the, the way you can respond and, and act. So one of the things I do now is I very much more consciously compartmentalize my life. This was something I did before, but I'm a little more thoughtful about it now. So I kind of, usually the night before I plan out the major things that need to happen the next day. And then those are typically the first things I tackle in the morning. But then a variety of things will come up throughout the day or you know you're going to have to tackle some things. So for me, it could be lab results or surgery reports. And so I say, okay, for this hour, I'm going to respond to as many patients as I can and handle mm-hmm. as many clinical issues as I can because I need to do a million other things after that. And even if you, the way I tell my trainees and my colleagues and the nurse practitioners and my assistant is, listen, you work as hard as you can for that period of time and then get away from it. Because even if you answer all of your issues in that moment, guess what's going to happen tomorrow? There's going to be more things to deal with. That's just the nature yeah. of work and what we do. So you have to build in the time. Otherwise, it will just eat away your entire day. Mm. And the other thing that builds in is you need, I've become really a proponent of breaks. Micro and macro breaks. And the concept there is that our brains and our bodies need rest and we work much more efficiently 
with planned breaks and programs. So work for an hour, give yourself 10 minutes, get out of your chair, go walk to the farthest coffee shop in the hospital or your office, get a cup of coffee, and then come back and sit down and tackle it again. And you'll find that in two hours, with a 10-minute break somewhere in the middle, you did more work than if you slogged through the two hours not getting out of your chair. And I think giving yourself those breaks really helps. I feel like this is one of those things where if you don't believe that, then try it. Like put it to the test in your own life. And I think what you're saying is true, but it's it doesn't fit with the model of, you know, just keep going. You got more stuff to do. And like you because in the moment I think you can't you're not aware of your productivity and you can't see your productivity dropping until you get to a place where it's really low. But I think you're right that those breaks like no I think no matter what you do, those breaks tend to be more effective over time than not taking them. Yeah, and there's a lot of dogma about, right, just slogging through, right? Or, you know, that's what, you know, everybody above us and before us did, right? You just, you put in your time and you work as hard as you can until the bell rings and then you get out of there. But that's not the way the world works anymore, right? I think a lot of us put in time beyond normal hours. And so you've got to create time and breaks for yourself and, you know, tried to work through some of this in medicine, people who are really data-driven and science-driven, you would be surprised the quality of the literature that shows breaks work. This exists in a variety of fields, everything from automobile, you know, um, you know factory lines, meat processing plants, um, you know, engineering firms and computer science like Google, there's some ratio of somewhere between you know 50 and 90 minutes of work and 10 and 20 minutes of break that optimizes efficiency no matter what outcome you're looking at, whether it's you know lines of code written, number of cars produced, and as well as worker satisfaction. So there's really data to support this, but none of us believe it, so we don't do it, right? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Well, and I feel like this is, I think what's exciting here is this is where you can start stacking different behaviors in, right? So like in, implicit in what you were saying was, you know, movement. And I know some people, um, Tim Anderson is a, a friend of mine from Original Strength. He'll be on the show um, in an upcoming episode. And, and like, he's all about movement snacks. It's how do you find a few minutes here and there to move, right? It's great to do your workout. Um, it's great to, you know, put in a more like an hour at the gym in the morning or whatever. But the reality is, is that like, if you don't move for the rest of the day, it doesn't matter, right? Like that, that long period of inactivity is horrible for you. Um, and that's based on research that NASA did and a bunch of others have done about like just what happens if you don't move. Right. And so what's cool about it is you can take a break, but then not only, I mean, you could sit and stare at the wall, which might be really good for you in some moments, or you could use it as an opportunity to go and walk and get that cup of coffee or do some squats or whatever it is that you need to do. And if nothing else, like that certainly, I think, makes it more interesting for this. And, and for those of us who feel guilty about just sitting still and not doing something like, great, you're doing something for your body. But there's there's also probably that mental benefit of, of taking a break from your inbox or wherever it is that you're stuck. And actually, it's another great opportunity to practice mindfulness. Right. So, you know, you you go outside and walk for five or 10 minutes, get your cell phone away. Don't look at your phone. And just take in what's going on around you. That's a meditation practice. That's a mindfulness practice right there while you're walking. You don't have to have your eyes closed. You can keep your shoes on. You know, it doesn't yep. have to be anything crazy. That's mindfulness practice. And you're just working on being present and in the moment and giving your mind something else to do before you get back to crunching numbers or writing or phone calls or whatever you need to do. Yeah. I think two things on this. One is I feel like for the older generation that sort of doesn't, 
isn't fully on board with us. I would argue that there was a lot more breaks that were just naturally built into the day when you didn't have cell phones, when you didn't have, you know, the hyper accurate scheduling programs, like, and, you know, you're waiting for a report to be faxed over or brought over by courier. Like, I think there's just a lot more natural moments for people to catch their breath. I think it's hard to appreciate how much the working world has sped up in the last 20 years with all the technology that's just like right there all the time. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I think the corollary we see in medicine is, you know, when our, you know, when our senior people trained, there was only X number of tests you can order. There were only Y number of results. And now, I mean, it's expansive what we go through and honestly, what our trainees have to go through to understand computer systems and ordering systems, as well as the science and the medicine, as well as the communication skills, as well as balancing all of that with their lives. So yeah, life has gotten a lot more complex. Uh, I certainly agree with that. You know, the other piece of this that you made me think of is um, I was reading something years ago about the Marine Corps and how they train new recruits. And, you know, this at the time they're talking about, you know, how do you train people to go to Afghanistan or Iraq where you're doing, you know, country building, right, where you're it's not just about winning, like it's really about how do you build relationships and stability and all those sorts of things. And they're talking about the training and in the training, I guess, as, as this was sort of reported, was Marines would uh be given those really long things that look like Q-tips that they would use in the joust in American Gladiators. Remember those things? Mm -hmm. I don't know what those are actually called. I'm sure there's a name for them. But like, it's a stick basically with two semi-hard pillows on either end. And the idea is to hit the other person. And so someone would blow a whistle, and the two people would just start beating each other with these things, like trying to win. Then someone would blow the whistle again, and they would have to sit down. And you'd sit down immediately, and you would try to calm your heart rate and calm basically all of your senses down as quickly as you possibly could. And then someone would blow the whistle and you'd be back at it again. And you would just go through this cycle. And I thought that was really fascinating. And obviously, like you can imagine the applications of that where you're like, you know, you're under threat, but then now you need to talk to a villager and then you're back under threat. And like, so being able to switch is really useful in that application. But like thinking about how stressed we all are and the fact that we kind of are living in this like hyper adrenalized state anyways. I think there's something about that. And I don't know how to recreate it. Like I don't have friends who would be willing to, to do that exercise with me, at least not nearby. Um, but there is something I think about what you're saying, which is a little bit more civilized perhaps of just like you take a break and you really make a point to slow down. You take your shoes off and you feel the grass in like underneath your feet or whatever. Um, or you're drinking your coffee and like you actually pay attention to how does it smell or taste. And you can accomplish, I think, the same thing where you just have that dramatic difference or that dramatic contrast that allows you to shift and, and start to get better at it. And I'm, I'm not as intentional about this as I, as I would like to be, but as I'm hearing you talk, it, it feels like there's so much promise in that and it's so attainable regardless of where you are and what you're doing. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, I love that story. I'm trying to figure out a way we can get our residents to fight each other and then uh, come take care of patients. I don't know how well that would go over <laughs> with the hospital administration, but... No, no. I mean, the corollary is great, right? It's all about controlling mind patterns and moving from one state to another. Um, I, I think that's great, Chris. That's really cool. I want to talk um, about some of the other things that you brought into work, or I think, as you mentioned before, that you realize there's some things that you are already doing, right? And so I think when we were talking before, one of those was around routine or around ritual. Give me a sense for, you know, was that something that was new or always existed? And, and what does that look like? And, and why do it? Yeah, I've always been a believer in routine, um, but once again, this thought process has formalized over the last you know one to two years for me. 
And I feel like before it was out of survival, right? You park in the same parking spot. So when you're exhausted and you walk out of work at night, you don't have to think about where your car is. You could just walk to it, yeah. right? I mean, we've all done things like that. But I think now more formally thinking about routine, what it does is it saves you brain space, brain power, right? We talked mm -hmm. about before the, the toddler who's learning to walk, right? How much brain power it takes to think about moving one foot in front of the other and now we spend no time or effort on that so we can think about other things. And that's part of the evolution of, of humans. So in our day-to-day -day life, I feel like we can do the same thing. You know, in the, uh, I'll give you my routine as it currently is, and it's evolved and evolving. So right now, um, I usually wake up before my alarm clock. I'm one of those annoying people, but I, I do that. Next to my bedside table, I have a glass of water because I'm chronically dehydrated. So the first thing I do in the morning is drink a big glass of water. I go relieve myself. I go downstairs and I do yoga for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever I've kind of, uh, whatever my schedule allows for that day. I do my short mindfulness practice. I make a cup full of fresh juice, a cup of coffee, and I'm off to work. Uh, and that's kind of the, the morning routine. Now I didn't look at my phone at all for the first mm -hmm. 45 minutes to the hour of my day. I didn't think about what I needed to do. That the first 45 minutes of the hour day was just kind of focused on waking upright, getting my body and mind in the right spot. And I found very rarely do you need to respond to an email immediately when you wake up. You don't need to check your fantasy team's scores. That, that <laughs> stuff all happened overnight. It's a random example. <laughs> right? There's nothing uh, that exciting on Twitter that's happening at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning. So it gives you a chance to kind of focus on yourself, set a tone or an intention for well-being throughout the day and wake your body and mind up. And then when I'm done with that cup of coffee or that cup of coffee is kind of the cue that, all right, the day's really starting now. Here's a little caffeine jolt. Now I'm really ready to get working and get going. And that's kind of how I, you know, the, the micro routine in the beginning of the day. Um, and I think that's a great way to get started. Your routine doesn't have to follow the same steps, but I think those have all built on each other. It started with just the yoga, then mindfulness, and I added the cup of water and then coffee and then juice. And now it's kind of evolved into this, as you said, kind of stacked pattern or stacked habits of a really nice way for me to start the morning. Yeah. I think this also gets back to a comment you made in the beginning where you're challenging me about like, we have more control than we think we do. Right. And I remember um, when I was in college, I would work out in the afternoon, you know, with a couple of guys, you go to the gym and, and I, you know, your workouts are always better in the afternoon. I think there's some science behind that. And then I started my job though, and the hours were super unpredictable. You might leave the office at seven 30, you might leave at two in the morning and you had no idea until it was whatever time it was to leave. Right. Um, and so what I, I learned pretty quickly was the only part of the day I could control was first thing in the morning. And so I switched my workouts to first thing in the day. I don't always hit those, but like, I realized that it was the only way I was going to consistently get there. Right. And so I think I, I, what I like hearing about your routine, and I imagine that you know, that alarm goes off pretty early, um, for, for you is like, you've been able to, to layer in a whole bunch of things that are important to you earlier in the day, um, because you can protect them. The question I would have for you, though, is like, how far will you go to preserve your routine? Like, if you have a sick kid, if you need to travel for work, how serious are you about making sure that happens in that order at that time? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question. I mean, you're right. It's all about what's available to you at the moment and what are you willing to give up? 
I will tell you, no matter how much I'm traveling, what's going on, um, I will always find time for the yoga mindfulness start to the day. And okay. what I'll do is if I'm having a really stressful day or if I was up all night long with a sick kid, I'll cut it down to five minutes or 10 minutes, but I will do something. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I may cut out, I may not have time to make juice, but I'll always have a cup of coffee, right? There are, you can kind of cut back on certain areas, but the idea is that it becomes ingrained and it's thoughtless almost. So you just go from one step to the next and you can make, you know, um, can make exceptions based on uh, certain circumstances and, but you can also do the things that are really important to you to, to start off. So you just may have to scale them back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about um, in the operating room? Like I, I imagine if there's a hierarchy of superstition, it's like baseball pitchers followed by operating room surgeons followed by like the rest of us. What, uh, what does that look like for you? Like have you always had a kind of a, a ritual and a routine or is that something that's been changing too? Yeah, so there is definitely a, a hierarchy of superstition in the operating room. There are some really uh, obsessive compulsive surgeons who uh, believe strictly in routine and outcomes and like baseball pitchers. Um, I'm not one of them, to be honest with you. Um, I, I'm not superstitious uh, in the operating room, but I do uh, ascribe to a routine. And um, part of that, you know, part of that is my work day. I kind of, I come in, I review the, uh, when I wake up in the morning, usually the first thing I do when I get into the hospital is I'll print out the, if I'm operating that day, I'll print out consent forms and review imaging labs, whatever the pertinent stuff is to get that patient uh, um, fresh in my head. And then I'll go meet them, do the permission slips, and then we go to the operating room. And medicine has built in routine to it. So for instance, in the beginning of every operation, we do a timeout, which is basically mm-hmm. a safety check. We make sure we've got the correct patient. We're talking, everybody's on the same page about what surgery we're doing. If there's a laterality associated with that, the correct side is there. If there's imaging, that imaging is up on one of the screens. So if I'm doing a kidney cancer, we can see the kidney tumor on the CT scan. Yeah. Everybody knows what we're doing. Otherwise, there's a pathology report or some supporting documentation to make sure we're getting things right. And then, um, you know, there's, there's a variety of other things that go into that checklist that are a little more technical. But one of the things I've added to it is an intention for the day. So at the end of our timeout, we now are our OR team. Uh, and when I first started doing this, they laughed at me a little bit, but it's catching on actually. Um, and sometimes that uh, intention can be very objective. So for instance, if we have a junior resident who really wants to learn on understanding some part of anatomy, our intention for the day could be like, okay, we want to understand this anatomy. We want to understand the blood vessels to the kidney today and see how they, you know, how they exist in this patient. Or it can be something more subjective more mindful, right? We want to work on patience. We want to work on kindness. We want to work on efficiency. They can be more abstract concepts as well. And so we all work on them together. And I think it brings the team together and gives us a concept throughout the day of, of how we're progressing as a team. Um, in the operating room, I've also built in kind of breaks, uh, as you said, where, where um, once again, challenging cases, hour, hour and a half into it, step back for two or three minutes. You're not abandoning a patient. They're not having any worse outcomes. And in fact, they may be better off because you're giving yourself a, a little bit of a mental break to kind of step back in. Um, I've built those into to my day. And then when a case is done, you know, obviously we debrief, but I also uh, like to take my team for coffee where we can talk about what happened in the operating room, what's coming up next, what's going on in people's lives. And it's a great part of the social routine of medicine where we can catch up with each other. 
That's interesting. Is that is that typical from what you understand across other teams where people take that time to do like an after action report? Uh, yeah. So so timeouts and debriefs are pretty standard in most hospitals. Different people okay. may spend different time or effort doing them. Right. A debrief yeah. can be as simple as, yep, everything's fine. See you guys later. I'm going back to my office. Or it could also be, yeah, this went wrong. This could have gone better. This is what we need to prepare for for the next case. So they're, okay. you know, um, and some people take it more seriously than others, but they're there for safety and quality and to give people the opportunity to discuss those things. I find that fascinating because I think in the business world, um, those types of activities are a lot less prevalent. Um, you see it like in the army, for example, and it sounds like in medicine too, where it's, that's just part of the way that the work gets done is like, you have a mission. And after that mission, there is a process that you go through where you figure out, you know, what were you trying to do? What happened? You know, what would you change? What would you do next time? That sort of stuff. And I think that makes, that makes sense. Probably makes sense in your profession, but I see this in business all the time where organizations might do something like even professional services firms that I worked at, we would have, you know, let's say you spent a few days putting a proposal out and you end up losing, Right. Um, no one talks about what happened, what, how could we have done a better job or, or worse? Like you, you lose on the same type of proposal over a year, like several, several times, but no one really gets together to say like, Hey, what's going on here? It happens informally. And there's some people who are good at it, but even on projects, like you'd finish a three month project and, and sort of you'd hand over a deliverable and then everyone just kind of vanished to their next project. And if it, like every project could have gone better and yet no one makes the time or the space to say, Hey, how do we do better? Right. What do we learn? Um, and, and I think there are some organizations that are better at it, some teams, some individuals, et cetera. But like by and large, it's just not something that people make adequate space for. Um, so interesting to hear that in your world, that is more of it. But it still sounds like there's probably some variability from person to person. From leader to leader. I think probably the same in, in your field, right? You'll, you'll find very good leaders who are very good at debriefing their teams. And there are some people who just want to move on to the next project. And honestly, there's probably circumstances where it's appropriate to just move on. Well, and it's and it's always rational, right? It's always a busy person who's got something else to do, or pe- people want to save face and they don't want to talk about what they screwed up. Like, there's great reasons to not have that conversation. It's just that in aggregate, it tends to not be optimal, right? And that's that's the battle you fight. And to bring it back to the theme we've been on today, if you want to be completely mindful, right, and think about where you are in the moment, you've got to reflect on the good and the bad. Where you are in that mm. moment, that's the only way the next moment's going to get better. So can we stay on that? Because I, I feel like I have a perception that mindfulness is like, I'm just wherever I am and I'm hyper-focused on it, but I don't spend a lot of time going back into the past and I don't spend too much time projecting out into the future. But I think what like what we're talking about here, you do sometimes want to go back in the past and figure out what happened. And sometimes you want to be planful, right? And figure out where you're going. I'm imagining they're not actually at odds with each other, but in a very simplistic read, it's, you know, it's just, hey, just stay focused on the moment what's what's missing from that generalization yeah i think the 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 metaphor that's going to work for you there there's something called holographic thinking okay right so everything exists in a spectrum right you can't have a problem without a solution right mm-hmm. you can't feel crappy without feeling better at some point yep right and so you're in the moment but the moment is all interconnected right and so you can think about how you got there and where you're going that's part of being in the moment, it's okay, hmm. right? And, and it really depends on what your, what your goals are and what you're trying to do, right? So yeah. if your goal is in the moment to plan out your next business venture or plan your next surgery, you have to be thinking about the past and the future. There's no way to, to detangle sure. them. And so it, it's just kind of, I, I like that term. It's kind of, it's a weird term, but I like that holographic thinking term 
um, because everything's tied into each other. And once you realize that you can't have a problem without a solution, it takes the weight off the problem, takes the, takes the kind of angst out of the moment because you're going to get there or you won't, somebody else will get you there. But I mean, you, you know, <laughs> it's going to move forward. So, yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was just how you've seen change play out in your own life. So we talked about some of the specifics, which has been super helpful, but, um, I think there's a couple different levels of this that are interesting to me. I guess the first one is like, what did it feel like as you started to dive into these new practices? Did you find that right away you were seeing some positive benefits, like more flexibility, like you talked about, or did you feel like you had to put in some effort for a period of time and the results then came back kind of slow, but then, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and they started building each other and it became more exponential where like, then one day you're like, wow, I've had some pretty big changes. Like, or did you get some quick wins and it's, it's been pretty, pretty linear progress? Like, what does that felt like for you? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, Chris, to be honest with you. You know, there's, yeah. you know, for instance, I didn't really feel like I was getting more flexible. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, when I first started doing yoga, I couldn't, you know, if I was in a, uh, like a plank or a downward dog, I couldn't get my foot up to my hands to like stand up. I had to like grab it with my other arm and like swing it up. And now that becomes yep. like second inch. Oh, wow, I can move my feet to my hands. That's incredible. I can touch my toes, you know? Um, so there are some incremental benefits, but I think what you realize, and I think this is true for probably anything, is that you're going to get better and then you're going to hit plateaus. And sometimes you're going to even feel like you're going backwards. But yeah. the key is sticking in it. And that's where you're going to see the benefits is when you're really struggling and you feel like you're not seeing benefit, sticking with things is um, that you've seen benefits before, uh, I think will kind of help you uh, achieve that. And, you know, it, we've all got to be smart and we've got to, you know, do the things that work for us. So, right. If you, if you're trying something new, for instance, if you try yoga and you fail at it from the beginning and it's miserable for you and you hate it, yeah, don't right. stick with it. Go try something new and different. But if you're seeing progress and then hit a plateau, stick in that plateau because probably more progress is coming. Yeah. Does that also tie back to what you're saying around like some days you'll just show up for five minutes. You'll do a few minutes of yoga. Like when you're having a tough time, or you hit one of those plateaus. Like, do you ever, do you ever back off? Yeah. A little bit? I, and I think that's an important so concept. Keep showing it's, up without totally uh, you know, it's a interest. concept of kind of compounding interest, right? If you stop making the investment, you've lost a whole bunch, but if you keep yeah. making an investment, even if it's small, you will continue to grow and you'll continue to progress. So when you're having those really tough times or those tough days, still do something for yourself. Um, try and keep the, the progress or the habit going so that way you're not going backwards. You can, it's okay to keep it still where it is, um, but at least don't let it go backwards. Yeah. Phil, this is um, super interesting, and and I, I love hearing from you because you're someone who like I'm I'm not sure how you do everything that you do, and so if you can find ways to like fit this into the nooks and crannies of your life and see real benefits, that's like that's very encouraging and exciting for me. So thanks for being on the show, Phil, and, and sharing a bit about your journey with us here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.